The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. overcome not on our own strength but by the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimony by faith let me pray father indeed lord jesus indeed you are worthy of all all of our honor and praise for you indeed overcame, Lord Jesus, dying on the cross for us in our place to wash us and to present us before the Father, pure, clean, worthy to stand before him, not in ourselves, but in what you have done in your righteousness. Worthy are you of all of our praise. We are not there yet. We need bread today to sustain us. Bread for our souls. And as Charlie prayed this, we are breaking open the bread of life here. You are the bread of life revealed to us in your word. And I am, I am fully, um, fully aware that this particular slice of bread to some may taste quite foreign. Um, like Russian black bread to someone who's grown up on hostess white bread their whole life. And so I pray, Father, that you would give us your spirit here today and cause us to look into your word and to see what it is saying, to hear it clearly and to apply it to our hearts in such a way that it would be sweet, that it would be delightful to us, though at first it may taste a little foreign or even hard. I don't have that in me. I'm not smart enough to do that. Would you please do that? I'm not powerful enough to do that. Would you please do that? Would you meet with us here today and um, give us bread that would lead to endurance and that would lead to eternal life for all who are here. I ask for nothing less than that, Father. Would you please glorify your own name and advance your kingdom and cause your will to be done by doing this here today. Pray this in your name. Amen. <clears throat> so I'm speaking this morning from the letter from Jude. Jude, the second the last book in the Bible, just before Revelation, if you're wondering where it is. Jude's underlying assumption is that we are all vulnerable. We're all vulnerable to the problem of false teachers and false teaching. Everyone is vulnerable. Even those who are called, loved by God, and kept, kept by God. Even though God himself keeps Christians, we too are vulnerable 
to being led away by false teaching. Jude very much wanted to write a, a sunny letter simply for mutual enjoyment of the gospel with his hearers. But his original audience is vulnerable too to, to false teachers who had appeared inside the churches. And this remains an ever-present danger for every church of every generation. For us too. But we also live in times when false teachers need not be physically present in the church to be heard in the church. Our world is awash with voices that, that woo us away from God, away from life. There are false teachers within us, whether physically present or not. Therefore, like every generation, we must contend for the faith, contend for the truth. So Jude therefore tells us what we need to see regarding false teachers and false teaching in the first 19 verses of Jude. And then what contending for the faith actually looks like in the shorter second half of the book. So let me read the book of Jude. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. 
It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers, following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who was able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. The word of the Lord. So first, three critical truths about false teachers and their teaching. Their character, their inevitability, and their end. Their character, their inevitability, and their end. The character of false teachers and their teaching is, in verse 3, in a word repeated throughout the letter, ungodly. Ungodly in the sense of immoral, but also in the more basic, literal sense of being ungod, not having God, on a trajectory away from God, devoid of the Spirit, verse 20, and leading others on a trajectory away from God. Jude gets more specific in verse 4. First and most foundationally, they pervert the grace of God. They twist the gospel. Often by causing doubt in the gospel. Especially about God's love for you. His future, his present, and his past love for you. The devil knows his Bible. And he too knows that the gospel is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. His power is the power of a lie. And in every generation, he is a false shepherd who shepherds other false shepherds who just feed themselves and they feed themselves and in doing so they pervert the gospel. They twist it. The devil is always contending for the faith to erode it. Just enough to cause you to doubt the loving provision of your father and then to be attracted to his better alternatives. So let us, let us not assume the gospel or that we know the gospel or that the next generation knows the gospel. Don't ever assume that. These teachers just appear in your life unnoticed, hiding in plain sight as your roommate or your neighbor or your professor or on the news or on your Facebook feed or on the bookstore shelf. 
in the implied philosophy of the person you're having coffee with. They twist the gospel by claiming a more enlightened view on life than you. Verse 8. They rely on their dreams, their intuition. They claim a moral and intellectual high ground. In verse 10, they, they blaspheme, they, they judge whatever doesn't agree with their moral and intellectual instincts. Casting doubt on God's love, they imply, I've got a better way. This doubt leads to what Jude says next in verse 4. They deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Doubt leads to subtle but profound defection. A move, a shift, a move from your place, out from under the loving provision of this master and Lord. Oh, he, he, he can be uh, Lord and master over spiritual matters in your life, but not your pocketbook, not your bedroom, not your intellect. From doubt to subtle but massive defection. This moving from our place, this is the common thread of all of the analogies that Jude gives, starting in verse 5. Israel in the desert moved from their place of faith to grumbling. The angels left their place to have human women. The men of Sodom and Gomorrah who stepped over the boundaries and sought sexual immorality with other flesh, as your footnote might say there, other flesh, other men who in their case were actually angels. When we move from our place, when we move from our place of, of contented uh, love and faith in the Lord, um, we, we always move up. We don't ever move down. We always move up to take God's place to gain satisfaction our own way. This is the point of the story in verse 9 about the devil and the archangel Michael. Michael would not presume to take God's place. The emphasis there is the Lord rebuke you, devil, not even me, the archangel. The Lord rebuke you. I will not take his place. Now, we may have questions here about angels and how some of this all works, but don't miss Jude's point. Ironically, in trying to move up, we actually move down. We become like animals, verse 10, led not by our father, but by our instincts, by our appetites. And this then leads to the third character trait, a, a life of sensuality. This, this sensuality knows how to creep in unnoticed, verse 4, and how to hide right out in the open in plain sight, verse 12. Um, is, is, is not our generation an example of this sensuality lived out in plain sight? Of course, we, we see sensuality in the sexual revolution that has moved a whole generation out of its place at breathtaking speed. And um, too often that that sexual revolution has infected the church. But we also see sensuality hiding in plain sight, right out in the open, in the false teaching of materialism, the pursuit of life through stuff and pleasure. Too many of our young people have pursued a life that is essentially materialism, not Christianity. Not because they were exposed to it first at State U, but because they were exposed to it first at home and in their home church. 
So the end game here, the end game is division, verse 19. False teaching works, verse 16, like the grumbler malcontent at the office water cooler who, who seeks to peel people off by stirring up discontentment and, and, and grumbling against the boss and how the boss is running things. You know, the one who talks so boastfully about how they can run things so much better. The promise is a better path to life, but the end game, the end game is that you would be peeled off from your place peeled off, stripped of your humanity, and left exposed. So do not be surprised. Do not be surprised at the existence of false teachers. Do not be surprised at their existence because it is inevitable. Verses 17 and 18 tell us that the apostles said it would come. So don't be naive. There's nothing noble about naivete. If you're heading off to a Christian college this fall, or if you attend a Christian school right now, don't be naive. Don't think that, that it could never come and face you and just simply appear before you. The Bible says, the apostles said it would come. And when it finally comes, we must see its end. We must see its end. Two things here. The end, is, the end of false teaching is futility and judgment. Futility and judgment. Futility because these false teachers cannot deliver what they promise, verses 12 and 13. Like clouds with no water, like trees with no fruit, like planets that look like stars but move across the sky in weird ways and mislead navigators. These teachers promise a more enlightened, a more noble, a more pleasurable experience. But in fact, their teaching only leads to wreckage, to futility. Has the sexual revolution made life in our culture simpler? Has it made life better? Happier? Has materialism made us more or less depressed? Which is it? Jude is saying, look at their fruit, look at the wreckage in their life and in your life. That wreckage is telling you something. It's telling you that their teaching does not work. They can't fulfill their promises. And it's leading you somewhere to an even worse wreckage. This is what Jude means in verse 10 when he says that they are actually destroyed by their enlightened intuition. By, by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. They are destroyed. Judgment. So, judgment. In judgment, God shows no partiality. No partiality. Not even to conservative Utah Christians. Verse 5, religious people experience judgment. Verse 6, angels experience judgment. In verse 7, irreligious, sexually immoral rapists endure judgment. Grumblers, verse 16. Scoffers, verse 18. Even prophets and priests, verse 11. God shows no partiality. The ungodly and their followers will experience the judgment of God, now in this life and in total in his return. Verses 14 and 15. So, I, I say this. Not with joy, but with 
with trembling. Uh, trembling because it's true. And trembling because I, I, I feel here like I, I'm talking about something that I, I might s- describe it in, in some way that is, is somehow unhelpful to you. And it might give someone here some reason to discount what I'm saying. I, I, I might, with the wrong tone of voice, the wrong use of words, or, or somehow might say something that turns you off. But I, I, So I'm asking, if I have done that, or if I do do that, please take the word at its word. It's true. But also, please understand Jude's purpose in giving us Christians such, such colorful and vivid language here to describe judgment. He's talking to Christians. When we find ourselves attracted by such teaching, we need to see its end. We need to see where it's heading. The reason why false teaching is attractive to you is that you don't see its end at first. That's why it's attractive to you. But if you, if you could see its end, that attraction would be stripped away and you would recoil. You would pull up short. You would stop, and you would turn in another direction. It's the second half of the letter. So Jude is, Jude is using such, such colorful, vivid, whoa, language here, so that you would remember this. And when you, when you feel yourself being attracted to some philosophy that impl- implicitly asks you to jettison some part of the gospel, to ask, that, that, that asks you to divide from the people of God, that's trying to peel you off, that imp- basically implies that it's okay to live an immoral life. And you, and you feel yourself attracted by that. What Jude is wanting to have happen here is for the, these, these vivid pictures of judgment to come into your mind and for you to stop and say, oh, oh no, 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 that's where that's heading. Whew. I'm going to stop. I'm not sure yet which way I want to go, but I know I need to stop. If you could see and tell yourself with the eyes of faith, believing the, believing the Bible, that this teaching leads to, quote, eternal chains and a punishment of eternal fire, the gloom of utter eternal darkness, then its, its power to attract you would be stripped away. But perhaps you're thinking, isn't all this talk of judgment a little much, really? I mean, is, is this really necessary? I mean, isn't this actually a little barbaric? We're, we're modern people here. This is 2017. How archaic, how barbaric. Yes, this is hard teaching. But given the existence of judgment, tell me, which is truly barbaric? A father who, wanting his children to be happy, never tells them about judgment though it's coming. Or the father who tells his children about judgment that they would be happy in the face of it. Tell me, which is more barbaric? And I think deep down, we all reserve judgment for certain things. Hang with me on this one. This week I happened upon, I, I don't usually do this, but I happened upon the Twitter stream of comments regarding the death of Roger Ailes, the founder of Fox News. 
probably imagine what was there. Many of the comments picked up on how his end was like a parable that frankly would fit quite well in Jude's letter. If, if the reports about him are true, if you take advantage of women who work for you, you will be found out and you will experience wreckage. You will experience a fall as he did. You will lose your place. And then you will die and then you will experience total judgment. Now what struck me about the comments was not so much that they expressed glee about Ail's death. Most of them did. Most of them were just one after the other of glee about the man's death. But what struck me most was how many of them used the biblical language of judgment, glee about the prospect, the image of Ail's burning in hell, that kind of language. My point here is not a political one, but this. We all reserve judgment. We all reserve judgment, especially for those who are not only evil in our eyes, but those who lead other people away in their evil. We instinctively want what is right and good to be seen by all the world as right and good, and these people saw that as being right and good. Again, no comment on the, po the politics here, just the observation that we all reserve judgment for certain things. The question is whether what you hold to be right and good, the thing that inspires you in judgment, is really right and good. That's the question. The reason the ungodly receive judgment is that God himself is the ultimate good and the only good of the universe. If, if you are a Christian, you have been called, verse 1, from, from before time began because you were beloved by this God before time began. And this God, this God in his infinite love for you leaves nothing to chance. And verse 1, he keeps you from beginning to end. He leaves nothing to chance in his infinite love for you. He will keep you from stumbling into destruction. And what does he keep you for? What does verse 1 say? He keeps you for Jesus. You for him, but also him for you. To experience his love, to experience what every human being longs for, mercy, peace, and love multiplied, overflowing to you forever. And to one day present you completely righteous and pure, clothed in glory as you were always made to be not disrobed of your humanity not stripped of your humanity but clothed in perfect humanity like Jesus in glory before him into the very presence of God himself verse 24 and to stand there and to see and feel his pleasure upon you to experience the understatement of the day quote great joy Joy like you've never known before, forever. God is the good you have always longed for, that you've searched for in stuff and sex and money and relationships and degrees. In all your life, right on to the moment when you take your last dying breath, this God, this love, this God friend is what you need, what you should actually long for. In your final moments, he will be what you need. And nothing else, nothing else 
in the entire universe will even come close to supplying what you will need in that moment. He is the only good, the infinite good of the universe. So God brings judgment to show all the world that right is right and good is good. And it is God in Christ. Don't even say that it comes through God in Christ. It is God in Christ. Thus, judgment on the ungodly. Thus, judgment on the ungodly. So praise be to God. Who of us has earned that? Who of us could accomplish that ourselves? None of us. It has all been done for us. This this, this stand, this place where we are no longer counted among the ungodly, but we are counted godly. It has been accomplished for us by Christ on the cross. And Christian, nobody can take that from you. You are kept forever. It's done. done. And to take you there in love, he brings judgment to keep you. He brings judgment to keep you, to separate you from ungodliness, to keep you from it. For him, for Jesus, for your unending joy to his glory. We all gain God. We all, we all gain the infinite good of the universe by only one way, through faith in Jesus, in his death and his resurrection for you and in living with him as your king. There is no other way. No other way. No other way that anyone believes and endures to the end but by living with him as your king in everything. Therefore, since it is by faith, contend for the faith. Contend for the faith. So we finally see what this means in the second half of the letter in verses 20 through 25. So what does it mean to contend for the faith. What does it mean? Well, we throw the heretics out, right? We shout and denounce. We run picket lines. We judge and shun. We rebuke. We cut out all digital communication. We monasticize and we withdraw. That's what verse 20 says, right? <clears throat> no. No, verse 21. We contend for the faith by keeping ourselves in the love of God. By keeping ourselves in the love of God. Now, if God keeps me, you just said that, Jed, how is it then that I keep myself in his love? Well, an analogy from parenting. The fastest way for my son to experience my painful discipline is not to sin or to make a mistake. It's to do it with an attitude. High-handed, rebellious disobedience, that'll do it. 
And when my discipline comes, in that moment, it really doesn't do much good to tell him that I'm doing this because I love him, you know, um, because I want him to return to his place contented under my providing love. No, I, I bring wreckage to his backside. And I hope that he hears what the wreckage is telling him, that being out from under this place, it's not working. It's going to a bad place. I love you. I don't want you to go there. Come back. My love for my son is unending, but when I bring wreckage, it does not always feel like love. But this is how I keep him. I think this is, this is the, the sense of what Jude is saying here, to keep ourselves in his love. This is the logic of Jesus himself. In John 15, he tells us that he has and will continue to love us. And then he tells us, after just saying that, that we should abide in his love. How so? By obeying his commandments. As we keep ourselves in his love to us, we endure, as Jude says, to our great joy by obeying his commandments. Now, then, how to obey? Notice carefully that Jude does not say, keep yourself in God's love. He says, keep yourselves in God's love. This is a community project. We are kept in our place of trusting, loving obedience as he uses each of us to keep the other. This is how God does it. Graduates, college students, nobody puts in their future plans section of the graduation program, nobody puts in there, having grown up in a Christian home, I'm going to set out to pursue the false teaching of materialism and worship at the altar of sex and burn myself out to make a living and then get to midlife and find myself surrounded by wreckage. Nobody says that. But how many people go that path? Nobody says that. But a massive contributor to that is neglecting the community of the saints when you go to college. And I mean a local gospel-centered congregation, not some on-campus group, as good as they may be. You will have so many other voices in your life wooing you away from God. Do not, do not, I implore you, neglect the voices of a gospel-centered church. Because there is something powerful going on in a community of gospel-centered saints that I pray would happen more and more here. That God himself, through the saints, is providing us the power to obey. This is where so many go wrong. We, we, we strive for obedience without the power to obey. We don't have it. And so God graciously, leaving nothing to chance, provides it for us this way. And if you look closely, Jude loves threes. So this is just being faithful to the texture. Jude loves groups of threes. God provides the power to obey this way by giving faith, hope, and love in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit through word, prayer, and fellowship. I told you he likes threes. By, give, by giving, God gives us faith, hope, and love in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit through word, prayer, and fellowship. 
Let me summarize it, and then I'm going to hopefully put some helpful pictures to this. Contending for the faith means entering into a, a virtuous cycle of, of gaining faith, hope, and love from communion with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And we gain that, that communion through word, through the Bible, the gospel, through prayer, and through fellowship, through partnering with each other in the gospel, in the truth, in life. As we look into the word and pray and partner in the gospel, we commune more with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit and are filled with more faith, more hope, and love, which then flows not only to us, but through us to other people. And in this virtuous cycle, we become a church that is not overcome by lies. We become overcomers who endure to the end. Overcomers like that song we just sang, spoke of. So let me show you where I get this from the text. We are to keep ourselves in the love of God. The word God in verse 21 is emphasizing the Father. Love and the Father. But we do this by continually building each other up in faith. Verse 20. The once for all delivered to the saints faith. The faith that's found in the Bible. The gospel. The word. Faith and word. The sense here is not so much the, the acquisition of knowledge about the faith, but that each of us would help the other to be confronted by and convinced of the truth of the gospel, all of its facets, shown most clearly to us at the cross, the center of the Bible, where God gave up his son in love for us, to be convinced of his love, how strong and wide and deep it is for you. We constantly remind each other of the unbreakable grace of God. But we did, we're never satisfied with just the acquisition of knowledge. We are meant to constantly encourage each other to lean on it, to bet our lives on it, to lean and bet. And in this leaning and betting on the grace of God in your life, it is in that that you have the power to obey. Betting your life that God's grace will meet you wherever you need it. Five minutes from now or five million years from now, you will have it. Then we are to be continually praying in the Spirit. Prayer and Spirit. This means that we pray for ourselves and each other, not according to our own instincts, to feed our own appetites. Not according to, you know, just whatever occurs to us. But in the Spirit means according to the priorities and the control of the Spirit. This may mean that you are so in control of the Spirit, so controlled by the Spirit in that moment that you pray in another tongue. Or it might mean that you simply pray the Spirit's priorities for you and for others. You, you simply pray for God's name to be hallowed his kingdom to come and his will to be done in your life and this other one. When the new directories come out this week, treat them like a prayer list first and a phone directory second. And linger in prayer over those who are already away at college or who are graduating. Because as we pray in the Spirit, 
tracking with Romans 8 here, the Spirit keeps us in the Father's love by convincing our hearts of the fact that we are children of God. And if children of God, then heirs. Co-heirs with Christ in the grace of God. And that nothing, nothing could ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And as you are convinced of that, you have all the power you need to obey, to be kept in the love of God. You know, we, we often talk about being that the Spirit convicted me of sin. We often say that. But I have to tell you, it is even better to be convicted, to be convinced by the Spirit of God's love for you. That is even more important. This then gives us the power to wait. Another word for hope. Faith, love, and hope. We wait for the mercy which is another word for grace or favor that the Lord Jesus Christ will bring. Mercy that leads to eternal life. We wait in hope. Normal Christianity lived here and now between the ages in the wilderness is a life of waiting by faith for God's coming mercy. Utah Christians... In the nation's best economy, armed with Costco memberships, can you wait? Are you waiting for the treasure that is to come when Jesus returns? Can you wait? Modern, enlightened millennials in a culture of easy sex, physical and digital, can you wait? Can you wait by hoping in the satisfying grace that Jesus will bring so very soon? Are you waiting? Can you help others to wait? Can you invite others into your life who will help you wait? Wait for what sex points to, the climax of history when we will see him face to face and all of our satisfaction, all of our desires will be satisfied. Bible-believing Christians who are called hateful and stupid and evil for believing the Bible, can you wait for your vindication? Or do you need to get it now on Facebook or over the office water cooler? Can you wait for Christ's return for the world to see that God is right and that it was worth it to trust him and to wait for him? Can you wait? Real Christians wait in love. In love. As we wait, we move towards others, fellowship, in merciful love. As we have been loved in mercy, we do the same thing to those around us. Verse 22, to those who doubt, who waver in their faith, not sure of whether to keep going or to defect, we have mercy, mercy. We don't crush them under judgment. Christians, Christians who bank everything on the mercy that is to come, be merciful. Beloved brothers and sisters, please, please. Be merciful to each other. Be merciful to those who doubt. You've been given so much, so much mercy. Be merciful. With others, verse 23, this merciful love looks more aggressive. We snatch them out of the fire. We don't wait for them to call us. We call them. We don't let their absence go months without a call. We call, we sacrifice time, we visit, we talk, we move. 
Our true shepherd stopped at nothing to rescue us from the, the wooing of that false shepherd, seeking and saving us in mercy. So we bear the family resemblance and we move. To others yet still, perhaps, perhaps your non-Christian neighbor who was already caught full on in the sexual revolution or in a life of materialism. We are, verse 23, like doctors in the middle of an Ebola outbreak. <clears throat> we show them mercy. We show them mercy that we ourselves have received, rescuing them with the gospel. But we do it with an attitude of fear, an attitude of fear, fear for ourselves, remembering that we are not immune to their virus of sin. We too are vulnerable. So when the patient comes in, clothes stained in blood and viral muck, we welcome the patient. We get close to the patient. We spend time with the patient. We befriend the patient, but we keep our hazmat suit on and we burn the clothes. Yes, we love the sinner and we hate the sin, but we don't hate the sin out of judgmentalism. We hate the sin because if it could, it would kill us too. It would lead us to judgment too. That's why we hate the sin. All of this is what contending for the faith looks like. So Christian, are you up for this? Are you in? Are you in? Are you about this? Does this describe you or not? Because, verse 24, you are kept from stumbling. You no longer need to live for your own glory. Soon you will be given unimaginable glory. You will share, you will share in all of His majesty. Verse 25, you will have a Savior and a Lord. Not will, you do have a Savior and a Lord who presently and forever exercises all authority and all dominion for you to bring you to unimaginable, unending joy. He has done this from eternity past for you. He's doing it right now for you. And He promises you to continue to exercise all dominion and all authority for you forever. Bet your life on it. Because it's true. And in your betting your life on this, you will be free. You will have all the power you need to love. I have to tell you that no matter what degrees you have, no matter what, how much money you have, no matter what your reputation is, I, I, unless you are living a life in this hope, in this hope, you, you will not be truly useful in this age. You won't. It's all going to burn. The only true usefulness in this present dark age comes through people who are betting their lives on this hope. In the last few verses of this, of this letter. It's, it's the only place where we find the courage we need to move forward into the outbreak and to give close-up, merciful love. Do you want to be a useful, courageous person in this present age? You only find it by faith, by hope in this Jesus and his love for you.
So in this, we are free, free to give our lives to each other, that each one of us would abide in this love, this love that will never, ever let us go. So are you in? Let's pray. Father, we all want to be useful. We don't want to be useless. Heaven forbid that any of us should lead others astray. But we are all vulnerable. So I pray that you please continue to fill this church. Fill it with your spirit. Please cause your spirit to convince us and to convict us of your unbreakable, unending love for us in Christ Jesus. Convince us of this and make us truly useful, courageous people in this present age. In your name I pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.